The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. The brave ones who ventured out this morning. Glad that it made sense for you to get here. And uh, as I've been saying the last few weeks, um, sort of asking for forgiveness, because I know going through this more systematic, structured uh, list of instructions from the Buddha, it is not everybody's cup of tea. And I want to keep reminding us that a lot of training, not just spiritual trainings, but, you know, learning to be a doctor. Some of you in the room have jumped through all those hoops, right? Or learning to be a psychologist or learning to be an auto mechanic or, you know, there's a lot of, you know, structure, systematization to the training. But then when you're actually doing your job, you're not kind of doing it in that linear way that you may be trained. You're, it's more of a nimble dance as you do your jobs, right? As we do what we do in life. And it's the same thing with these instructions. So this fall, those of you who've been coming regularly, we've been really learning the 16 instructions. So we went through the 12 this morning. And I've got the cheat sheet here. And you can, Gabe, our office manager, has been putting the link in the weekly email so you can print your own copy. But if that's not convenient for you, I do have some copies up here just as a way. But you could memorize it. It's not that much to memorize. And I'll I'll go through it in just a moment. Uh, Because in the next couple of weeks, starting today, we're going to, uh, I'm going to introduce the fourth set of four instructions. And again, you're just getting the map so that you can work with your own heart and mind in a nimble, unstructured way. Right? So, But we're learning the scales, so to speak. Even though you don't, may not, some of you don't like that sort of linear, systema, systemized approach, especially to something like spiritual practice. It can feel like an affront. Oh, how can, you know, awakening or what is sacred sort of lend itself to a sequence of instructions? You know, what does the Buddha know? Well, that's what people say who haven't actually learned, that like everything, awakening is a natural process. And just like a a biologist or whatever might in a you know they might in a very systemat- uh, systematic way describe how fall becomes winter you know and what happens with the plants sending the fluids into the earth you know away from the leaves down into you know and the leaf you could describe that in a very linear systemized way but you know when it actually happens when the fall turns to winter it's just like a real act of wonder how that all happens, right? But it can be described. And the nice thing about describing it, it doesn't, like the map doesn't really help us unless we're using the map to get close to the reality of a mind going from being pushed around, like an ordinary mind in a Buddhist point of view, an ordinary mind is constantly being pushed around 
by its own fabrication, its own constructions. We're basically thinking about stuff that scares us into reacting, into getting tight. And then we notice we're tight and we react to that in ways that make us tight. And we notice other people are tight and we react to that by getting tight. Basically, everything is triggering us getting tight. Even when we see something beautiful, we get tight. Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) Have you noticed? Oh, I can't wait until I'm on vacation or can't wait till I have lunch with my friend. Or It's like that's our one move. We get tight. Oh, nothing's happening. (laughs) We get tight. So that's the normal mode. And then the Buddha has described this natural process of the mind, the heart, releasing all of that, unhooking, uprooting all of those tendencies to get tight. And that's what these six, he's done it a number of different ways. The mindfulness of breathing instructions is one of the most elegant and systematic descriptions of a mind, of a heart, releasing its grip on neurotic activity. So at the end, the mind is realizing the mind, right? The mind is realizing the mind, or you could say the heart is awakening, is realizing the heart that's free of neurotic activity. Because from my neurotic point of view, I can think the thought, oh yeah, the, the heart, the mind, free of neurotic activity. But I don't really know what I'm talking about. I may know what neurotic activity is, so I'll have a little bit of sense it's not this. It's not this mind, this heart, feeling afflicted by all my thoughts and my desires and my fears and my hopes and my dreams and my, you know, whatever. It's not this. I don't know what it is, but I know what it's not. Right? So that's where we are a lot of the time. I know what it is to be all wound up, entangled, caught up, oppressed by my own worries and hopes and this and that, comparing mind, wounds from the past, unattended wounds, unhealed wounds, emotional wounds. Right? We know what that's like. Well, what's it like for the mind when, not that that isn't there, but there's no resistance to anything. No grasping. Another way of thinking of no grasping is no friction, no resistance to anything. The mind is not uh, offering up any resistance. So that's the whole, like from suffering to non-suffering, that's what the Buddha described. And the breath initially is there to help us drop the sort of grosser aspects of distracted mind because we're paying attention to the in and out breath. That's just step one and two out of the 16 where we're so wholly, fully there experiencing the breathing in and the breathing out that the mind can't be attending to anything else because it's attending to breathing in and breathing out with a real fullness wholeheartedness, right? Not a tightness, but a real interest. And so it drops a lot of its gross fixation on this and that, and it's just with the present moment experience of breathing in and breathing out. It could be just feeling the belly rise and fall, or feeling the chest expanding, contracting, or 
feeling the touching as it goes in and out. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the dropping of the mind's gross fixations on thinking about this and that and just being coming more into the present moment. And then we start feeling the whole body as we're breathing in and out and notice the calming. So the first set of four instructions is really the healing of the mind and body. Right? So we're being aware of the relationship of the mind and body. We're purifying how the mind relates to embodiment from being controlling, for example, to being allowing, accepting with the activity of the body. So in the biggest sense, that means all five senses, the seeing, the hearing, the tactile experience, the smelling and tasting. It's like the mind doesn't have a problem with the sensing body as it actually is. That's the first four. And its experience is a bodily calm because the mind isn't relating to the body, the sensitivity of the body, in a neurotic way, in a controlling way. It's okay with the sensitivity of the body, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing. It's okay with the sensitivity. So there's no reverberation in the heart or mind because of what the body is sensing. And that's the calm. So that's what we're getting here. We're learning to be embodied. And it's a little liberation right there. That's not a small thing. But don't assume we're doing that perfectly. We just need to do it good enough so we can learn the map. So then the second set of four, right? Now we're purifying the mind's relationship to mental activity. The knowing mind is knowing mental activity with the second set of four. That's what we're keeping in mind. The first set of four, the knowing mind, was keeping in mind the sensitivity of the body, the five physical senses. Now, the knowing mind, awareness, is being aware of mental activity. Now, we start, even though it's not going to be obvious, it's a lot easier to be aware of the movement of joy than anything else. And joy is the grossest, like in the Buddhist, the way the Buddha understood his own mind, joy is the grossest expression of a wholesome mind. So in terms of mental happiness, joy is the grossest kind of happiness. And at the other end of the spectrum, a real sense of peace and stillness is the most refined kind of happiness. So remember, the Buddha is asking us, okay, we're gonna, I'm asking you to be aware of mental activity, but I'm going to suggest that you start with the most accessible, wholesome aspect of the mind or the mental activity that you can be aware of. So it won't be necessarily the obvious mental activity. You might be worrying about lunch, but you're not going to pay attention to the worrying about lunch. You're going to notice that lightness, that sense of release or flow or buoyancy, like a mental smile is a way. You can even use that mental image, that bright, inclusive smile. Yeah. Yes. Right? Just like, can't we imagine an oppressive no? Like, oh, life, my life, my situation. You know? So we, can, we know that more negative, depressive kind of emotional feel, right? Can't we touch into that? Anybody not be able to touch into negativity? 
Like, okay, I'll, I'll help you. Think about politics. <laughs> Whatever your political persuasion, doesn't matter. Ugh, those idiots. <laughs> you know? <sighs> well, not that. Like, ah, uh, yes. You know, and maybe you need to bring a little image to mind. That's okay because it's mental activity. So maybe, like I saw yesterday, after our cat spent most of the day outside, it came in and stretched out in front of, we have a wood stove, our wood stove, you know, and exposed its belly to the wood stove. Ah, right? It's like, there's a lot wrong with the world, but seeing a beast exhausted from being outside in the storm come in and have some basic bodily comfort, I can just vibrationally, like a sympathetic joy, like, oh yeah, happiness, that sort of, Say that happiness of safety, the safety of comfort and warmth. Ah, see that that what is that mental quality? Well, we call it joy. It's a lightness, as opposed to an oppressed feeling in the heart and mind. Right. So, to begin this uh, fifth instruction, breathing in, experiencing joy; breathing out, experiencing joy. You have to be willing to put aside your grievances with life, because. If you keep your grievances with life in mind, you're not doing the fifth instruction. You're doing counter the fifth instruction, right? You're digging the hole deeper. I mean, sometimes we do need to think about the grievances and address them. But it's better to do that when we're not immediately entangled in the identity of being the oppressed one. And we can sort of see it with a little bit more space so we might actually more creatively respond. And one of the ways to bring perspective into the places in life where there really is pain and suffering is to be able to more readily touch into joy and beauty and goodness, lightness, buoyancy, right? Uh, rapture. Rapture is a necessary human emotion. Where is it in your life? Do we know where we see and feel and experience rapture? Because if you don't, you have to start opening to that possibility that even when you're in a time where your life is really difficult, rapture is still available. It may not be a common experience. It may not be every other moment in your life, but there are probably some moments. Like when you walk in after being outside on a day like today and you feel warmth, something simple, or you have soup, or you get a hug, or you see somebody smile. Or you hear, I mean, talk about silly stuff. You hear Christmas music, and despite your kind of, you know, better judgment, you feel good because of <laughs> some old nostalgic programming we got, you know? And the heart starts humming along. And you could be Scrooge, or you could just realize, oh, joy. This is joy. For no good reason, there's joy. Why not? Why not let the mind, the knowing mind, pay attention to that as I breathe in for those four or five seconds and as I breathe out? Why do I always feel like, oh, no, no. I'm not allowed to touch into joy because of this, because of that. I've got my, we all have our list of 20 reasons why we shouldn't touch into joy and goodness. Right? So this fifth instruction is really challenging those habits of mind. It's really inviting us 
honeys, we've got to develop this competency of paying attention for the half breath, whatever that is, 10 seconds at most, right? For that duration, can I keep joy in mind? Good. How about for the next out-breath? Keep it in mind. How about for the next in-breath? And build the competency until it's relatively easy to keep joy, lightness, buoyancy in mind. And again, feel free if you have to bring a mental image to mind. Because remember, the second set of four instructions are about mental activity anyway. So don't be afraid of bringing an image to mind because it's all about what you're choosing to bring in mind. That's why the Buddha says one trains oneself while breathing in, right? experiencing joy. Experiencing joy while breathing out. And then naturally when the mind or heart gets enough joy, it starts to do this. Ah, I can trust the moment. I don't neurotically need the moment to be different than it is. So the joy goes into the background, and what comes into the foreground is a more resonant kind of happiness we call ease, ease of heart, contentedness, not needing things to be different. That's a different kind of, a more refined kind of inner or mental or heart pleasure. Right? And we need to get to know ease. Sukha. It's interesting, this uh, Sanskrit or Pali, these ancient languages are Indo-European languages. So the Pali word is sukha, which is similar now to our Western word of sugar. Sukha. Right? Sweet. It's a sweet, resonant happiness. Can we keep it in mind as we breathe in? Can we keep that content? contentedness of heart and mind as we breathe out. And then, so we're just aware of that flow of mental activity, of the joy, of the ease of heart. And then what that does is it shifts. We're purifying the mind's view about mental activity, which includes feeling. Feeling is a mental activity. Intention is a mental activity. Perception, mental activity. So it's These are just different aspects of what we generally call the thinking mind, which is mental activity, right? The mind is moving. Just like the body, the sensation of tactile experience, of seeing, of hearing, that's a movement too. Now we're looking at a more subtle movement of thought, of mental activity. But now the mind has a much more, the knowing mind has a much more spacious, dispassionate, relationship to mental activity. So now we're just going to look at whatever the mind is doing, the mental activity, but from this point of view of dispassion. It's just thinking, breathing in, noticing mental activity, breathing out, noticing mental activity, but we're noticing how we're not being pushed around. We don't really care because there's a lot of ease. So let the mental activity be what it is. And that leads to a quieting or a calming of mental activity. So with the first set, we calmed down the body because the mind was relating to the body in a non-oppressive way. Now the mind is relating to mental activity in a non-oppressive way. When we're relating to mental activity in an oppressive way, one thought always leads to another thought. right? Like, And then we get to that traffic jam of thoughts, tie ourselves in knots, 
and then we get exhausted. We drop it and we pick up another thing to chew on, right? endlessly chewing on something. That's the normal way the mind relates to mental activity. But now because we, we specifically trained ourselves to pay, it, pay attention to joy and ease, we've triggered a sense of dispassion. The mind feels content, and then that contentedness uh, sort of starts to include mental activity. Like, I'm a, I have this dispassionate relationship with mental activity, and then so mental activity quiets down because mental activity is no longer triggering more mental activity. So it's not we're not feeding the beast of reactivity. And that's what the second two ins- or the last two instructions in that four second set of four, where we're looking at mental activity, joy, ease, and then we're looking at how the mind quiets down, calms down, precisely because we're just letting thoughts be thoughts. It quiets down. That's the trick. You want to quiet your mind down? Don't try to calm your mind down. Observe mental activity with dispassion. I think I mentioned last week a great little line in one of our early Dharma books here in the West, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. He was the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center in the 60s. I think he died like in 72, 1972. But he was real influential as Buddhism kind of spread here in the West. And in his famous book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he has this example like you want to keep cows in the pasture. You could either build a really high, strong fence or you could have a really big pasture. And this is the dispassionate relationship to mental activity. It's like let thoughts do whatever they want to do because I don't really care what the mental activity is doing. You want to think about that? Fine. Hands off. Hands off of mental activity. Because the, re- the what really revs up mental activity is trying to control it, trying to manage it. But if you just leave it alone, mental activity quiets down. If you just let it be. But it's a real art. right? And the art is notice joy, notice ease, Notice that that has an effect on the mind, which we're calling dispassion, spaciousness, non-controlling. And that's what quiets the mind down. And that sets up the third set of four instructions. So we purify the way the mind relates to the body, the sensitivity of the body. We've talked about purifying how the mind relates to mental activity. Now we're talking about purifying how the mind relates to the space of the mind itself, not the activity. That was the second set of four. Now we're talking about how the mind relates to the space of the mind. It's like there's the activity in the room, but there's the space of the room itself. So the mind has these two aspects. There's aspects of the mind that are in motion, Feelings are in motion. They're always changing. Thoughts are changing. Perceptions are changing. Right? The intention to do something, to think something, those intentions are always coming and going. But there's something about the mind that isn't changing. It's subtle, which is why it's the third set of instructions. 
right? Not the first. We start with the gross, and then a little less gross, mental activity, and then more subtle, the space of the knowing mind. You could even say the space of the present moment, now. Not what's happening now, but the nowness of now, <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. And sometimes people, like even now, even though we're kind of in a more no ordinary state of consciousness, we're not so much in a meditative space right now, but even now, can't you notice the space of the present moment? Kind of like a background Sometimes people even hear that background sound. I'm not saying that the space of the moment is that background sound, but there's a kind of undifferentiatedness about the space of the present moment. Like artists get really good, some artists at least, depending on their modality, get really good at noticing, in the art world they call it negative space. It's like the painter noticing the the space of the canvas, not what they've painted on the canvas, but the space of the canvas. And my wife, some of you know, Wynne, who teaches here, is one of the co-founders of Common Ground and a regular teacher here when we can get her. Um, she's a choreographer, and choreographers have to notice the space of the stage, not just what the dancers are doing, but the space. Maybe musicians or some musicians in the room need to know the space of silence in which the music does what the music does. Right? So as spiritual seekers, as people who are interested in the nature of the mind and heart, we have to, it's subtle, and we have to go from the philosophical notion that I'm giving you now with words to the experiential uh, reality of the space of the mind. Because it's here and now. It's always here and now. It can be realized, but it can't be, you know, words will only sort of point toward it. Yeah, Lewis. Are you making a distinction between the present moment versus the content of the... Uh, I'm just saying that there's, there are two facets of the way that it is. So the way that it is is physicality, the, the seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, and tasting being known, the activity of mind being known, and intuiting the space of the mind. See, we can't really know the space of the knowing mind, but we know that it's there because the activity of the mind and the activity of the body is happening in the space of the present moment, the space of the mind. Where else would it be happening? So we know, we intuit the space of the mind. That's uh, step 12. No, I'm sorry, that's uh, step 9, right? So we're in the third set of four. Intuit or experience the space of the mind or the space of the present moment. Gladden it or appreciate it. It's subtle. It's hard to keep in mind, but it's sacred. It's beautiful. It's worthy of keeping in mind. That's that next step. And that really develops 
the I'm using instead of experiencing I'm using the word intuiting because it's a little different than experiencing the in breath which you know is kind of has this dualistic the knowing mind is knowing the sensation of breathing in but here we're intuiting the space indirectly right knowing can't notice knowing knowing can notice what's being known, but we can't, knowing can't, the mirror can't reflect the mirror. It can only reflect what shows up in the space in front of the mirror. But we can intuit that something is there knowing the mental activity and knowing the bodily activity. And that's what we're calling the space of the present moment, space of the mind. We're noticing, we're intuiting it, we're appreciating it. We're letting it hear the word is concentrating the mind. But it's really about purifying or developing the stillness, the silence, the perception of the space, the silence, the stillness, the beauty of the mind. We're developing that. We're keeping that in so mu- in mind so to such a degree that the mind releases the most subtle activity. What is the most subtle activity that mostly goes unseen? This, at this point in practice, it's this beautiful mind is mine. Or I'm that beautiful mind. Right? So there's a very subtle, as we're aware of the silence of the present moment, the space of the present moment, the stillness, the peace of the present moment, There's a very subtle mental activity that has gone unseen, which is a little identification with this peaceful mind. And that fourth instruction here is realizing the mind when there's no selfing going on whatsoever. We're realizing this moment, but there's no neurotic, activity of claiming the mind, claiming the moment as mine. In Buddhism, we, the way the Buddha said this is no I-making, I, the letter I, no I-making, no mind-making, M-I-N-E, right? There's no selfing, no self-centered activity. And that's a realization. It's an insight. Oh, this is the mind without selfing, without any self-centered drama, Now, we can kind of get it intellectually, but it's an impactful moment when the mind realizes the mind free of selfing. Because what it's realizing is selfing is optional. See, right now with an ordinary mind, we don't know the mind without selfing. That's kind of a person who hasn't had a deep taste of awakening, which is almost all of us, maybe all of us, right? Then we can get interested in that, but we may not intuitively know what the Buddha or other people mean when they're talking about realizing the mind free of grasping, realizing a mind free of self-centeredness. We can be attracted to that idea, that image, but we, we should have a lot of humility about whether we know that experience yet. And 
like what we do know, though, is we know when our mind is totally feel, filled, excuse me, totally filled with neurotic self-centered activity. We know how oppressive that is. And we know a mind that has less of that, right? So we know some spectrum of like being really neurotic and being not so neurotic. But we may not know the nth degree, a moment of the mind absolutely free of self-centered activity. We want to stay open. We want some humility about that. Because if we don't have that humility, we won't be interested in this third set of four instructions of going from the space of the mind really appreciating the sacredness, the beauty of that space of the mind and really fully developing the perception of the mind, the space of the mind, not the activity of the mind. So we're keeping the space of the mind in mind, not what's happening, and not any identification with it. So because we're keeping the space in mind, the identification is going to fall away and then we'll realize there's no selfing going on. There's no claiming of it. So it's just a natural process of purifying how the mind is relating to the space of the mind. Yeah, Tom. Is the space of the mind like master? Yeah, exactly. Thoughts and sensations are like power. And if you're not aware of how big the space of the master is, because part of this process of noticing the space, appreciating the space, stilling or refining or uh, deepening the perception of the space, liberating the space, is realizing that the very nature of the knowing mind the very nature of the present moment, the very nature of the mind and heart is boundlessness. It doesn't have boundaries. right? Like when you look right now, we all have a mind, a heart. right? So look, where is the edge? Where is the edge of your mind? Like where your mind can't go. Anybody got a boundary, an edge? No, because in the very nature of the mind is boundless. Uh, we do Qigong practice here. It's not, you know, from the Buddhist tradition, but there's some really, it really lends itself. And one of the things of the Qigong is we learn how to tune into the earth sense of what it is to have a body, right? But it's always about heaven and earth when you're doing Qigong and some of the Chinese um, medicine practices uh, coming out of um, Taoism. And so, but the mind or heaven is represented as an open bowl. I really like that, right? So you got the earth, which, but there's also this quality of heaven. It's right here. It's like an open bowl. It's not the bowl. It's the bowl points to the boundless space of heaven. Heaven doesn't have boundaries. And this is not something intellectual or philosophical. All you have to do is check about the nature of your heart and mind, you'll see that right now at any time you check, the mind has this nature of being boundless. But we tend to be obsessed with the activity of our mind. And the activity of the mind is like a momentary like emotion or a momentary thought, a momentary intention. So it feels sort of concrete and has time and space. 
But the space of the mind is different than mental activity. The space of the mind is boundless, immeasurable, infinite, like that big pasture. Yeah. I don't know your name. Christine. Christine. Um, I heard this idea at a a mindfulness retreat in Wisconsin where the idea was we were led in a guided meditation to like close your eyes and imagine going into a theater. Theater? Into a movie theater and you'd sit and on the screen you'd see your thoughts and you'd sit with that for a while but then after a couple more minutes you'd re-enter and you sit behind yourself and you see yourself watching your thoughts. Yeah. And then before too long you do it again. Yeah. And that's an exercise to start intuiting the space. Like we're not interested in any activity, but that this space, like anything can happen in the space. But can we train ourselves not to always be noticing the activity? Can we train the mind to intuit that there is this space? It's like not so different than saying, as we're here having this discussion, can you intuit the space of the room? I mean, the space of the room's always been here, but when's the last time you actually sensed the space of the room? But we could definitely train our mind to keep the space of the room in mind, couldn't we? We would just have to train it. And it's the same thing, but in this inner space of the heart and mind, like keeping it in mind. And then starting next week, we'll go through the next, because once we've had that experience over and over again of the mind, realizing the mind free of self-centeredness, then because of the intuitive, the intuition of freedom, right, then we can do this next set of four trainings where we're basically uprooting the habit of seeing things from a self-centered point of view. But we need the intuition of the mind free of selfing to uproot selfing. Otherwise, it's a sense of self trying to get rid of self. That's neurotic. But if we do the uprooting of self from the memory of not-self, the freedom, then we can, because we need the flavor of the absence of selfing to know how to recognize selfing, right? We recognize neurotic activity because the heart has developed a taste of the absence of neurotic activity. Then we really notice how we're selfing in this moment and selfing in that moment and taking this personally. But first we have to know what it is to not be taking stuff personally. And that's really what that third set of instructions is. We're deepening the insight of a mind that is released, has released self-centered activity. And how does that release happen or the calming of that self-centeredness happen? Because we've been noticing the space, appreciating the space, and really developing that boundless space. We're keeping the boundless, empty, open space of the mind in mind to such degree that the neurotic activity isn't being fed, so it will eventually cease momentarily. Still there is a latent tendency to 
to take things personally. But we just need to notice when it ceases, like, oh, this is the mind without neurotic activity. Because that, that leaves an impression. It's impactful to notice the mind free of self-centeredness. We're a little bit over, so we should leave it here. Thanks for the questions. It was really helpful to kind of finish up our discussion. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.